does sugar really make kids hyperactive? Is fresh fruit and veg better than frozen? And does coffee actually make you dehydrated? The answer to all of the questions I just posed is no. Welcome to the world of nutrition myths and in this podcast, I'll go over some of the more popular myths I've come across and explain where the truth really lies. The field of nutrition can be fertile ground for myths and poor advice to propagate. That doesn't mean that scientists don't ever get it wrong too. They do. And I do. We all do. But as research and evidence changes, so too should advice. But some advice that was accepted as fact and later was shown to be not so factual does stick around for some time. So today, here is a new installment of some popular myths I've come across over the years. And my first myth is to do with sugar making kids hyperactive. The connection between sugar and hyperactivity is one of the most popular food behavior myths going around. Where there's sugar, there must be hyperactive kids, or so says conventional wisdom. Science says otherwise. There have been a whole bunch of published, randomized, controlled trials done in this area, and they have all been unable to find any difference in behavior between children who ate sugar, be it from lollies, chocolate, or natural sources, and those who did not. In fact, a meta-analysis of this very topic, and which included 16 trials, which I'll link to in the show notes, came to the clear conclusion that sugar didn't affect kids' behavior. And even studies that included children with ADHD could not detect any meaningful difference between the behavior of children who ate sugar compared to those who did not. Now, this review I linked to was done way back in 1995, so you may be thinking this is all horribly out of date and surely science has found something different. Well, the answer is no, because scientists actually have better things to do with their time than to keep on repeating the same type of experiments over and over again, only to find no effect. So it was time to move on once the answer was pretty clear. Now, the most important part of all of these myth-busting studies that looked at kids and sugar and hyperactivity was that they used a study design where both the researchers and parents and the children were unaware of whether they were consuming a product containing sugar or a non-sugar substitute. It is only when you introduce an intentional bias into the experiments and allow the parents to know what food their child was given that the real culprit behind the myth emerges. When parents believe their child has been given a drink containing sugar, they consistently rate their child's behavior as more hyperactive, even if the drink did not contain any sugar. But why do kids seem so hyperactive when they eat a lot of sugar? It all comes down to context. When kids are having fun at birthday parties, on holidays, and at family celebrations, sugar-laden food is often served. The fun, freedom, and contact with other kids makes kids hyperactive, not the food they eat. But that doesn't mean hyperactivity should be ignored. ADHD is a serious behavioral 
and developmental disorder that can impact on the child's academic performance and family life. As such, extreme hyperactivity should be investigated by an appropriate health professional. Simply removing sugar from the child's diet isn't going to reduce their hyperactivity. Having too much sugar though, especially if it is coming from drinks, has been linked to excess weight gain and dental problems in kids. So even with the sugar equals hyperactivity myth busted, there are valid reasons to cut down on how much sugar kids eat. So now onto my second myth. And for good health, is it always a case of fresh is best? Not at all. Nutritionally, there is not a big difference between fresh and frozen produce. And by fresh here, I mean what you purchase from the supermarket or greengrocer that has spent some time in transport and storage. Not everybody has the time or access to get produce through a farmer's market or even grow it themselves, particularly in the big cities. Frozen produce is normally blanched and frozen shortly after harvest. The blanching does degrade some of the vitamins, such as vitamin C, but it is on par with what happens with fresh produce when cooked. After this, freezing locks in most of the nutrients. And to keep that nutrition locked in, it is best to use cooking methods like steaming and microwaving to minimize heat and water losses of a couple of the key indicator vitamins, such as vitamin C, folate, and thiamine. The limited shelf life of fresh produce means it isn't always possible to have plenty of fresh produce on hand. And the situation can be even more difficult for people living in remote areas. Considering we eat so few vegetables, then having convenient options like frozen on hand can only help address this. So do people who have plenty of frozen produce on hand eat more fruits and vegetables? Using food and nutrient intake data from two large dietary surveys conducted in the United States, researchers looked at fresh and frozen fruit and vegetable consumption at the household level. And I'll link to this study in the show notes. People who are regular consumers of frozen fruit and vegetables, together with fresh, ate significantly more compared to people who only ate fresh produce. The flow on from this was that eating more frozen fruit and vegetables meant that a person's diet was overall healthier. More fiber, potassium, calcium and vitamin D and less salt was a feature of the diets for those who had frozen produce as part of their diet. So frozen fruit and vegetables should be a backup option in the freezers of most people. Such foods are a nutritious, cost-effective and convenient way to get more fruit and vegetables in the diet each day. And now for myth number three. We often hear that coffee and other caffeine-containing drinks will make you dehydrated. But how much truth is there to this claim? If water consumption from foods and beverages matches water losses, which is going to be mostly from the urine, then that is the happy place of being in fluid balance. A diuretic is something that can upset this delicate balance by causing more water to be lost. Caffeine for many years has been considered a diuretic, 
but this view has been changing as more research comes to light, showing its effects on fluid balance is absolutely minor at best. Now, there is a small kernel of truth to claims that caffeine acts as a diuretic, but the key here is the amount of caffeine you have to have. Early research studies did find that caffeine caused water loss, but the amount of caffeine required was over 500 milligrams. That's equivalent to five to six cups of coffee, or double that if you're talking about cups of tea. And in more recent research, looking at how coffee can affect hydration, 50 regular coffee drinkers had a range of tests to measure hydration status over three days. The hydration tests were repeated after they swapped their coffee for water for three days. And their food, fluid and exercise habits stayed constant. And I'll link to this study in the show notes. And after all that drinking and testing, the research team found no differences between the effects of caffeine or plain water on any measure of hydration. All of the participants were regular coffee drinkers, so the result may have been different in people who consume little caffeine. But if someone drinks coffee rarely, then any effect on hydration will be fleeting. And what is already known is that we habituate to the effects of coffee. So once you become a long-term coffee drinker, or coffee addict, if you prefer that word, uh, any effects on hydration, we adapt to. So it's actually a fairly neutral effect that caffeine makes on how hydration status for regular coffee drinkers. With much interest in how different drinks can affect fluid balance, scientists have developed a beverage hydration index. And the index ranks fluids by the balance between how much the body retains or loses fluid when compared against water over a four-hour period after you have that drink. And using the beverage hydration index, there is little to separate coffee and plain water. And the same goes for cola, diet cola, tea, iced tea, orange juice, and even sports drinks. They all can keep a person hydrated just as well as water. It's only when you look at something like alcohol that you see very clear negative effects on hydration. But before you switch your drinking habits from eight glasses of water to eight cups of coffee a day to meet your likely fluid needs, a word of caution. Too much caffeine is not good for your health. Poor sleep patterns and insomnia, agitation, anxiety and heart palpitations are well-described effects of too much caffeine. Keeping your daily caffeine habit below about 400 milligrams, so that's about four cups of coffee, is best to aim for. For regular drinkers of coffee and tea, the good news is that there is little need to worry about it dehydrating you. Another bit of good news is that coffee and tea have many health benefits linked to them, including decreased risk of some cancers, heart disease, and even the risk of type 2 diabetes. So check out two of my earlier podcasts on both coffee and tea to get the good news. So that's it for today's show. You can find the show notes either on the app you're listening to this podcast on if it supports it, or else head over to my webpage at thinkingnutrition.com.au and click on the podcast section to find this episode to read the show notes. 
If you find this podcast of value, then please consider sharing it with your friends and colleagues, or maybe even leave a review. This all helps increase the ranking and reach of the podcast, which means a big win for credible, evidence-based nutrition messages while helping to dilute out the crazy and making the world a slightly less confusing place. I'm Tim Crow, and you've been listening to Thinking Nutrition. Thank you.